everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. I am a man of my word. If nothing else, I'm a man of my word. Last week, there was a bet that was made live on the air between yours truly, a Washington Redskins slash football team slash Commanders fan, and members of the Dallas Cowboys. And I pledge to you, if somehow, someway, my football team, already eliminated from postseason contention, nothing to play for, was going to take down Dak Prescott, Zeke Elliott, Micah Parsons, the Dallas Cowboys, who... Entering the final week of the regular season, still had a legitimate chance of winning the NFC East. That if my team somehow, some way, found a way to pull off the upset, I would rock my Washington gear into the studio this morning. And sure enough, here I am. Does it all fit? Not going to answer that question. (laughs) Is there some sucking in the gut to make this happen? Yeah, because it's been a minute for me to be able to wear my Washington gear. It's been so long that I've gained some pounds in the years since I've had enough good enough reason to wear my Washington stuff with pride. But here I am. With bells on, rocking my Washington gear this morning. So, can't say I'm not a man of my word. Of course, we'll share photos and a video on our social media platforms of me keeping my word. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one, Raymond Parch III. Of course, I'm joined inside the game studios by Miss Hannah Five Names. She's the producer extraordinaire. Anytime you have what I would call a quarter zip fleece that looks like a blanket that's monogrammed, you're a big deal. She is. She joins me for the next few hours. we got a good show lined up for you today. Obviously, national championship game is tonight, so we're going to talk a lot about that, preview that with multiple guests. Bill Bender, our friend from the Sporting News, college football writer, columnist, will join us at straight up 7 o'clock to help preview the game and how these two teams got there. Then at 7.30, from the Locked On Bulldogs podcast, David Monroe will join us to talk about Georgia's journey this season to get to the point where they're playing for another national championship, trying to win back-to-back titles for the first time, well, since Alabama did it in 11 and 12. Before then, it was USC 03-04, and before then, Nebraska 
94-95. It doesn't happen often. Then at 8 o'clock, Stephen Simcox from the Locked on TCU podcast will be joining us. This is a great story. Losing season a year ago, turn it around. They beat Michigan in the semifinals. And here they are, 60 minutes away from a national title. How did they do it? And then we'll close out today's show talking to our guy Ross Jackson for the Big Easy Blitz, putting a exclamation point, if you will, on the 2022 season for the New Orleans Saints. And, of course, we'll also dive into now that the playoffs are set, regular season's in the books. We'll look ahead to that as well. But let's start off with the Saints. Where to start? How to start? Yesterday was the epitome of this team season. It just it just was. They lost a ball game ten to seven. In the year of our Lord twenty twenty three. They found a way to lose a ball game 10 to 7. They found a way to lose a ball game to a quarterback who passed for 43 yards. The opposing quarterback passed for 43 yards. No touchdowns, two interceptions. And yet, somehow, some way, the New Orleans Saints said, we got this. You just thought we found terrible ways to lose games this year. Oh, no. No, no. You hadn't seen nothing yet. And it started off so promising, didn't it? Chris Olave catches that touchdown, and you're like, hey, here we go. This team's rolling. They jump out to a 7-0 lead. Right there in the first quarter, and you're like, hey, man, this is good to go. They're ready. They got this. 25-yard touchdown pass, Andy Dalton to Chris Olave, and they're off and running 7-0. Only needed eight plays to go 75 yards. A mere 359. Boom. Dome was rocking. People were excited. Going to take down the Carolina Panthers in the regular season finale. Not going to get swept in a season by a team that fired its head coach, traded away its best offensive player, traded away its best wide receiver. There's no way they're going to get swept by a team that did that. And then the Saints said, Hold my beer. We got this. Watch. Watch us. See what we're going to do. The defense actually played well. They did. Sam Darnold only had 43 yards passing, no touchdown passes, two interceptions. They sacked him a few times. They actually came to play. But what's been the problem for this Saints team all season long? 
when the defense is on, what does the offense do? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. You can point to every loss. And there's been moments where the offense has been good enough, but the defense hasn't been. Offense is there. Defense decides not to show up. Or vice versa. And that's exactly what happened yesterday. And after scoring early like that, you're thinking, oh, they got this. And then they just didn't do anything else. Nothing. Nothing. The Panthers finally score in the third quarter. And they do so on a fumble recovery. Shout out to the offensive linemen. Always love to see the big fellas get a touchdown. When the Panthers lose the football but recover it in their end zone, get the touchdown, it's tied up 7-7. But then what happens right at the end of the game? Offense can't do anything. Can't even pick up a first down. It was like the Arizona game or the Bengals game. It was like the Bengals game. Because it was the Bengals game, which they were winning, and they had won, and they had it done. And what happens? The offense can't run any clock. Offense can't pick up a first down. They give it back over to the defense, and then the defense decides to have one final breakdown. After being on the field too much or keeping them in the game and playing well the whole time, what does the defense do? Let's the Panthers go down the field in six plays, 31 yards. Just enough for them to get into field goal range. And I'm watching the game going, ha, here it is. There it is. Here it comes. It was my mother-in-law's birthday yesterday. We went to go visit with her. She likes watching the Saints, so it's her birthday. So we're hanging out, eating Chinese food, unwrapping gifts, eating some cake, watching the Saints. And then the Saints, you know, my wife's trying to be positive. And she's like, oh, Mom, Saints are going to get you a win on your birthday. And I looked at, I looked at Tina and I said, no, don't, don't say that. No, 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 no. They lost a game 10 to 7. They lose 10 to 7 while the quarterback that they're facing only throws for 43 yards and no touchdowns. What? And they get swept by a team that fired its head coach traded away its best player and traded away its best wide receiver during the season. And this isn't a team that they can win. They can defeat. Oh, Alvin Kamara, they utilized him, had over 100 yards rushing, had a nice day at the office. Chris Olave had that early touchdown, but then he had some drops. Oh, which were brutal. Rashid Shaheed had a couple of catches. Taysom Hill only had one catch, five carries. Probably should have utilized him a little bit more. Alave's lost fumble was brutal, right? That was bad. That was a rookie move by a guy who's been really good this rookie season. They ran the ball fairly effectively. Andy Dalton was is what he is, right? 171 yards, a touchdown, no picks, only sacked once, 15 of 25. So 
pretty decent, pretty decent day at the office, I guess, if you will. But the Saints defense got two interceptions, and you thought the second one by Sorensen. When Sorensen gets that second pick, the early one by Matthew was was okay, right? But when Daniel Sorensen gets the pick late, you're thinking that's the shot in the arm that they need. They're going to get the ball near midfield. The offense is going to be able to put together at least something to kick a go-ahead field goal. And that they'll win the game in ugly fashion 10 to 7. But what did the offense do? It didn't do anything. Andy Dalton throwing behind wide receivers. Wide receivers having the ball hit them in the hands. Once again, Alave had the lost fumble. Alave also had a brutal drop where Dalton actually hit him straight in his hands. Right in his hands while he was in motion, coming across the middle. Hands, drop. Brutal. And once again, Alave breaks... Marcus Colston, Saints rookie record for most receiving yards in a season. Goes over 1,000 yards. Great season. Great season. But, no. Not to be. Had a couple of missteps. And and look, the, the Saints defense gets two interceptions. And they still can't get the job done. Do their job. Sam Darnold had two fumbles. He recovered one. They fumbled the ball three times in this ball game. Saints were unable to recover any of them. But that's not the story of the game, right? The story of the game is the Saints found a way to lose yet again. Defense played lights out. May have played its best game until the very end. But they played lights out. You hold the opposition to 10 points, you probably should win that game in this day and age. Will Lutz, awful. Awful. Missed two field goals. The guy's a Pro Bowl kicker, but he has not been right all season. Remember last year, he missed due to injury. He's not right. And it may be time for the Saints to move on from him. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough. Will Lutz let him down. The offense let him down. Andy Dalton let him down. Chris Olave let him down. Just across the board. Across the board. Your defense forces turnovers, which it hadn't done all season. Your defense holds the opposition to 10 points. The defense holds the opposing quarterback to 43 yards passing and no touchdowns, and you lose the ball game at your own place. That is dreadful. A dreadful dreadful performance bad play calling bad execution bad coaching across the board 
and it seems fitting that that's how the Saints' season would end. Another game that they should have won, another game they could have won, and another game that they found a way to choke and lose. Finished the season 7-10 and overall. Same record as the Panthers. And the Saints now enter the offseason with just looking at things and going, what did we do? How did it all go wrong? Carolina, New Orleans, Atlanta all finished the regular season 7-10. and And what's going to sting for Saints fans, what's going to bother them is the fact that you blew the Carolina game, you blew the last Tampa game, you blew the Arizona game, you blew the Cincinnati game. That's four games right there. If you simply win two of those four games that I just mentioned, just two of them, not all four, just two, if you win two of those games, you're 9-8 and eight, and you win the division. A winning season, a playoff season, a division title was there from all was was there all season long. And the Saints blew it. The Saints didn't capitalize. The Saints can only blame themselves. We'll take a timeout. When we return here in RP3 and Company, we'll hear from the Saints as their season comes to an, well, not an abrupt end. We saw this coming from a mile away. Let's, what's the word I'm looking for? From, comes to just an awful end. There we go. That works. You're listening to RP3 and company right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything, but you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Hey, look, obviously disappointed in that uh, finish of that game. We didn't do enough good things to to win the game. I thought, you know, we dominated in a lot of different areas uh, with exception of the scoreboard. And, and we had some opportunities. We didn't take advantage of it. And so it's what happens when you don't when you don't take advantage of your opportunities. You let a team hang around and, and we let these guys hang around and they, they kept fighting and they had an opportunity to win it at the end. It's Dennis Allen. Saints head coach, and I anticipate him remaining as head coach. I just don't see, I will be surprised, rather, if they decide to make a move. If they move on from DA this offseason, I'd be surprised. Pete Carmichael, that's going to be a different story. But don't be stunned 
if they decide to retain both Dennis Allen and Pete Carmichael. Just go ahead and brace yourself, Saints fan. Go ahead and do it. I'm letting you know now. Go ahead and do it. Because there's a very distinct possibility that they're going to say, okay, yeah, we had injuries. You know, Michael Thomas didn't get to play like we thought he would. By the way, restructured that contract over the weekend, which means that's going to be the end for Michael Thomas in New Orleans. That's what that means. So he'll be playing with someone else next season. They had injuries. First-year head coach. They're probably going to keep D.A. And unless Pete Carmichael goes to them and says, oh, no, 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 I want out of here, he'll probably be retained. I'm 50-50 on if they're going to keep Pete Carmichael. Whether or not they should, I'm not 50-50 on. The offense is not that good with Pete Carmichael as the O.C. Just isn't probably need to make a change will they make a change uh, that's a whole different story offensively they start off so well they score the touchdown from Dalton to Alave and then it's nothing bupkis the rest of the way they looked anemic they looked out of sorts Andy Dalton was throwing behind wide receivers and when he did throw passes to his wide receivers they were dropping them not picking up first downs punt 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 Will Lutz out there missing kicks. Dennis Allen talked about his team's offensive struggles on Sunday. Well, look, I think there was some miscommunication on a couple of things. Um, you know, I thought there was a couple times Andy got a little pressure. I thought there was a couple times there was a miscommunication or a misread in terms of the passing game. We didn't catch the ball like we needed to catch the ball. I think there was a multitude of things. I don't know that it was effort, uh, but we certainly didn't execute very well. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, you're right. You didn't. It was awful. Just a dreadful offensive performance. It is the 2022 season, but it's already officially 2023. And you can't score more than seven points in a ball game at home against a team that's got six wins? For real? Oh. But it serves as the perfect explanation point to the season, doesn't it? It just does. You're like, hey, I've seen that picture before. I've seen this movie before. Multiple times this season. There it is. The Saints finding ways to lose games. They've done it all season long. To the tune of... Ten times. How would you characterize this season? This is what Dennis Allen had to say. Look, I think challenging. I mean, um, we obviously didn't win as many games as as, as we would have liked to. Um, I thought our guys fought and battled. I thought they overcame some adversity. You know, we, we there there's a handful of games there that, you know, I feel like if we would have been able to make a couple of critical plays um, that those games would have the outcome of those games could and uh, could have been different. Um, and then I think we're, 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 we're talking a little bit differently in here. So, um, but that's the nature of the, the, uh, the game that we play. Um, and so 
uh, we've got to find a way to be able to make the critical plays in the critical situations to give ourselves a chance to win the game. I just... Even with the team playing better the last few weeks, they were trying to build some momentum. They still looked ugly in stretches even in those games, right? They, they just did. The team never really came together. The light bulb never went off, so to speak, for this team. And Saints fans kept saying, kept trying to hold out hope, well, the division's bad. We can catch Tampa if we do this, we do this, we do this. Yeah, okay. But, you know, we go back and we look at the Mark Ingram situation, the Tampa game. Well, you know, if we only would have won that game. Well, you couldn't even beat Carolina. Like, it's almost better that you lost that Tampa game to put you behind the eight ball to go ahead and and and, and make sure that you didn't get into the playoffs? Because what would have happened if it would have came down to this last game and you would have lost that? That'd be far worse to try to recover from. The season was all about false hope for the Saints. They asked Cam Jordan afterwards, veteran guy, Still has something in the tank. Still trying to perform out there on a on a fairly high level. You know how close is this team from being seven and ten to possibly being ten and seven? Um, I'm always thinking we're close. I'm always thinking that my team is going to win. There's not been a game, a play, a drive, a series that I don't believe in what our offense is doing, what our defense is doing, what our special teams doing. I still think we got some of the best special teams players in the, in the nation. I still think we have potential in our offense to when we when we really clicked, it was lights out. I still think that, you know, our defensive side of the ball stepped up in a big way. Um, and if we could do that from jump, there should be nobody that would be messing with us. I think that in each one of these games, again, we have been in position to win them. It's not like it's not like we're down two, three touchdowns, losing by 30, 40 points or whatever it is. These are games that are coming down to one possession. I think if you look at the 10 games, I don't know how many of them were more than one possession switches. We can go all the way back to London. I mean, this is on us. It's always going to be on us. I love Cam taking the responsibility and saying it's on us. But some of the responsibility has to be put at the foot of Dennis Allen, Pete Carmichael, and let's be honest, Mickey Loomis. They did not put together a roster that was a winning roster. They thought they did. Many folks in the media thought they had. But the reality was that they didn't. And they paid the price for it. Yes, injuries play a role just like they do with every team. But this roster and its coaching staff never were on the same page. For whatever reason that may be, whether that's a lack of respect or not enough respect for DA, P. Carmichael not doing what he was supposed to do, quarterbacks 
not quite grasping the offense, wide receiver injuries, defensive line playing like garbage for the first 12 weeks of the season. It was always something, right? Every week or every few weeks, it felt like it was something else going on with the Saints. And that never stopped. That never stopped. Just never stopped. Camels asked, what's the message to the team this offseason, which feels like it's going to be a very critical offseason for the Saints? Take it to the offseason. Let this, let this loss burn. There's nothing to be proud of going 7-10. and 10. Um, not making the playoffs for the second time in a row. Let it burn. Let it let it stay in your mind. Let it simmer. Let it carry over into your workouts. Let it carry over into whatever you got to do to get your mind right. Um, take some time. Heal your body. And at the same time, let it let it be not even at the back of your mind. Let it be at the front of your mind. We have to be able to come in and take command from jump. You think about the entire season, what happens. Um, I think defense made some plays, but we can, there, if there's plays to be made, we can always make more. I think that, you know, early on this this first half of the season, we didn't have enough turnovers. I think early on, you know, whatever it was, um, we were working on some things. Second half of the season, you saw a completely different energy around the team. And that's the energy you need from jump. Um, not to finish the way we wanted. It's going to be irksome for a while. You hear it in his voice. In the second half of the season, they found it. Why wasn't it there from jump? He said in the last clip as well, right? Why wasn't it there? If they would have started their season differently during the playoffs. Once again, I broke it down. In four of the losses that definitely stand out to me, Arizona, Cincinnati, Tampa the second time, and Carolina this last time you win two of those four games you win the division that's it that's how close they were but they couldn't get out of their own way from jump couldn't get out of their own way we gotta take a timeout. when we return here on rp3 and company we'll unveil our poll question of the day and we'll look ahead to the nfl playoff picture it's all set now we're going to break it down for you. That's next right here on The Game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Hey, did, did you not get what you wanted from Santa? <laughs> not to worry. We have the gifts that you really want inside the game clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. As a member of our rewards club, you're going to have the opportunity to score excellent prizes like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester Steakhouse at Cypress Bayou Casino Resort. You can also get a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen, also at Cypress Bayou Casino Resort. We also have, guess what, $50 gift certificate to Richard Seafood Patio down in Abbeville. 
and $40 gift cards to Misfits, Dine and Drink in Broussard. They're all right there in our clubhouse. They're all right there ready for you to win. But you can only score these excellent prizes by becoming a member of the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free. It's simple. So go sign up today. Treat yourself. Why don't you? Poll question of the day. It's about tonight's national championship game. What will the outcome of tonight's title game be? TCU wins a close game. Ugo wins a close game. TCU wins in a blowout. UGA wins in a blowout. Right now, 45% of you say Georgia wins a close game. 28% say Georgia wins in a blowout. 24% of you say TCU wins a close game. And 3% say TCU wins in a blowout. JPK, the OD, says, Brain says Georgia, Hart says TCU. Love the TCU gritty quarterback. I can't stand this tool. He shared a gif of Stinson Bennett. Ton on Twitter says, I don't want to be right, but I think UGA goes back-to-back. TCU won't lose by more than 10, though, I don't think. At the end of the day, if the Frogs lose, they have nothing to hang their heads about. If the Dogs lose, they have everything to hang their heads about. Mr. Green says, TCU wins on a last-second field goal, 45-42. My man even went so far to give us a score prediction. John Paul says, it's just a great story for both teams. Two walk-ons at quarterback, both turn into Heisman Trophy finalists, but UGA will just outskill and out-talent them. Krista says, darn, I guess I won't be seeing the boyfriend tonight. She's making the national title game a priority. There you go. Down for that. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Regular season is now in the books for the NFL, which means it's time for the playoffs. Had some interesting drama come down at the end yesterday, last night, where the Detroit Lions handed the Green Bay Packers a big old L and prevented them from getting into the postseason. Lions don't make the postseason, but man... They finished that second half of the season extremely strong. Finished the year 9-8. and And they began 1-6. and And came just just short of missing the postseason, Detroit did. And by the way, Detroit still did that to Green Bay after knowing that Seattle won earlier in the day. Because once Seattle won, Detroit couldn't get into the postseason. Yet the Lions still went out there and handled the Packers a big old fat L to end the season as Aaron Rodgers will miss the postseason. Now the playoffs are set. Some all other interesting games came down. Miami won a slugfest, a low-scoring affair yesterday. They also needed some help. The Dolphins did, and they got it as the Bills playing in their first game since their star player, suffered cardiac arrest on the field. They eliminated New England, which paved the way for Miami. So the Dolphins get in as the final wildcard team as well. In the AFC, Chiefs are your one seed. They get the bye. Then it's Buffalo as the two, Cincinnati as the three, Jacksonville, who won on Saturday night versus Tennessee to win the AFC South. 
they get in as your four. And then your wild card teams are the Los Angeles Chargers, Baltimore Ravens, Miami Dolphins. So that presents some interesting matchups on the very first weekend. With Kansas City getting the bye, we're going to have Chargers at Jaguars, which is interesting. That's the 4-5 matchup. Chargers lost yesterday. Jacksonville won over the weekend. Two young teams. Doug Peterson's done a very nice job with Jacksonville. The Chargers, Staley's done a good enough job to probably save his job. But man, if they, after losing in the regular season finale, if they go and lose on the road to the Jacksonville Jaguars, there's going to be some rumblings there about Staley and the Chargers. But your matchups in the AFC for wildcard weekend, Chargers-Jaguars, that's going to be the night game on Saturday, 7-15 Central. Then it's going to be Dolphins-Bills, the very first game on Sunday. Miami's prize for getting into the playoffs for the first time in more than five years is having to go play in Buffalo against a division rival. And who knows who's going to be the quarterback for the Dolphins in this game? I I have no idea. And then Ravens-Bengals. So we're going to have not one but two divisional opponents two games featuring divisional opponents in the wildcard weekend on the AFC side of the ledger Ravens rested a bunch of guys didn't play a bunch of different guys they were on their third string quarterback as well for their regular season finale game against the Cincinnati Bengals they're going to try to bring everyone back for this wildcard matchup including possibly Lamar Jackson so once again Kansas City gets the bye Wildcard weekend, Dolphins at Bills. That's your 7-2 matchup. Your 6-3 matchup is Baltimore at Cincinnati. And then the 5-4 matchup, Chargers as the wildcard team versus the Jacksonville Jaguars, who ended up winning the AFC South. In the NFC, Philadelphia wins the East. They also finished with the best overall record, which means They are your top seed, and they receive the bye. That leaves San Francisco as the two seed, Minnesota as the three, Tampa as the lowest division winner as the four, Dallas after suffering the L from Washington yesterday. They're still the five seed. The Giants are the six seed, and Seattle gets in at nine and eight as the seven seed as they took the tiebreaker over Detroit by winning the head-to-head. That means you're going to have Seahawks 49ers, just like in the AFC. These are divisional opponents facing off on wildcard weekend. So Seattle at San Francisco is the very first game of wildcard weekend. That's going to be at 3.30 on Saturday. Then it's going to be Giants at Vikings, which is extremely interesting to me. That's going to be your 3.30 game on Sunday. And then on Monday night, it's going to be Cowboys at Tampa. That's right. We got a wild card game on Monday night football. And, of course, it's going to be Cowboys in the Bucks, a.k.a. 
the game that Saints fans will hate more than any other game during the wild card weekend. So those are your playoffs. That's the bracket. It's set. Got some intriguing matchups for wild card weekend, and you're going to be able to listen to those games, of course, right here on the game this coming weekend. We got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up our number one. Update that poll question. That's all going to be next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. Poll question of the day. We asked you, what will the outcome of tonight's title game be? TCU wins a close one. Georgia, UGA, wins a close one. TCU wins in a blowout or UGA wins in a blowout. Right now, most up-to-date results on the poll question of the day because that's what we're all about. 44% of you say UGA wins a close game. 27% say UGA wins a blowout. 26% of you say TCU wins a close game. 3% of you believe the Hornfall Frogs, well, there we go, it's Monday, are going to win in a blowout fashion. B-Rad on Twitter says, still think of TCU as a mid-major, as do most media and college football fans, so it would be pretty awesome if they win it. Both have talent, but I think UGA has a little too much for for them. Dogs win 41-34. Boy, high-scoring affair, that could be... It could be wildly entertaining. Wildly entertaining. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids. Let's not get sideways. Okay? It's early in the week, people. Let's keep it clean for the children. It's all about the kids. It's all about the children. Hour number one in the books. Coming up, hour number two, and we're going to kick it off with Bill Bender. The award-winning columnist reporter covering college football for the Sporting News. He's going to help us preview the national championship game. That's how we're going to kick off hour number two. That's next right here on The Game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Our number two has arrived on this Monday edition of our show. Of course, tonight is the national championship game from SoFi Stadium out in Los Angeles. The defending champs, the undefeated Georgia Bulldogs, going to be taking on the TCU Horn Frogs. One is a team that's looking to become the first back-to-back national champ since Alabama accomplished the feat in 2011-2012. The other one, they had a losing season a year ago, and they're trying to cap a Cinderella season with a national title. To break it all down for us is our good friend from the Sporting News, Bill Bender, joins us now. Bill, good morning to you. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on. Let's go back to the semifinals. What stands out to you about what TCU was able to accomplish against undefeated Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl? I mean, they made the big plays. They turned that into a Big 12 game. They made the game-changing turnovers. They stopped the run. They didn't get bullied. They, they 
they had a long checklist and they checked every box. Now they'll have the same very long checklist when they play Georgia, but I, I think self included, people have doubted them all season and doubted that this is real and now it's very real, a chance for them to win the national championship. Max Duggan is a guy who was a little up and down the last couple seasons at TCU under a legendary coach with Lincoln Riley's younger brother and head coach Sonny Dykes. He has turned it around, obviously Heisman runner-up this year. What's been the big difference in his game from your standpoint? Well, I mean, just the ability to make the big plays. The experience matters. He's played and started in 41 games. So, I mean, he's been around for a long time. And, you know, just his leadership and, and the way that he – I mean, the play that probably best exemplifies what he can do is that third and seven against Michigan where he drifted back in the pocket. He didn't panic. He bought time. And he throws a crossing route to Mikel Johnson that results in a 76-yard touchdown. So, yeah, he's been phenomenal this year, and, and I think that will continue. What stood out to me about that game, Bill, and I'd love to get your point of view, they didn't seem like the moment was too big for them. They seemed... Like, they were the better prepared team, especially early on against Michigan. And I was a little surprised by that. But that definitely played a huge role in that game. Well, they had Michigan scouted real well. I mean, especially around the goal line. And I think playoff didn't hurt them as much. Sometimes you see that in bowl games where a team has a long layoff and then they takes them a quarter and a half to get going. And, and that may have been the case with Michigan. I, I thought they didn't get going until the second quarter. And, and number two... You know, that game really tilted on one call, one really bad call. That result still shouldn't have been the next play on a fumble, but you know, that was a touchdown by Michigan. There's no doubt it was a touchdown. And, you know, that, that was one of those – there was a couple of those between both games where there were some really bad calls. Let's go to the other game, which was the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl there in Atlanta. Ohio State appeared to have Georgia on the ropes, leading by double-digit points heading into the fourth quarter. I know they didn't have Marvin Harrison Jr., but it looked like they were still going to be able to pull out the win and knock off the defending champs, yet Georgia found a way to outscore Ohio State 18-3 to in the final period. What stands out to you about Georgia's come-from-behind win in the Peach Bowl? I mean, that's what champions do. They behave like champions, and uh, that's what they did. They, they – uh, plays when they needed to. They uh, Stetson Bennett was brilliant in the fourth quarter. Kirby Smart maybe called the greatest timeout of all time um, before that fake punt because he saw something that he didn't like. And I mean, if Ohio State gets that fake punt, the game's over. So, yeah, Georgia behaved like champions in the fourth quarter. And Ohio State still had a shot, man. They, they uh, laid up for the field goal there, and obviously it didn't work out. So I think the sentiment and as you know i live up here in central ohio the sentiment for ohio state and michigan is probably the same it missed opportunity for both schools missed opportunities for both schools that's, that's well said and for georgia they'll have an opportunity to do something that's never been done in the college football playoff era having back-to-back national champs it's not going to be easy point spread is around 13 which seems a little high to me especially with the way tcu just finds ways to win games let me get your thoughts on this matchup between the Horn frogs and the bulldogs what do you think is going to be a big x factor yes there's a lot of things to me uh one uh you know can tcu make the big plays uh in the passing game kind of do what they did with michigan and turn it into a big 12 passing fest and a shootout type game that george has given up 850 passing yards the last two games and then 
Yeah, I, I, Raymond, I think the big key, can they, Georgia, dictate the game with their running game? And what I mean by that is, you know, there's four teams that held Georgia to less than 175 yards rushing, and Missouri and Ohio State were two of them. So they couldn't, you know, once Georgia gets ahead by a couple scores, they'll just wear on you with that violent running game with those three running backs. And I think TCU has to keep this within that seven-point range because once Georgia goes up by 14 or so, um, I think they would be in trouble. How much is experience of last year playing in the national title game and winning it, how much of a, an advantage is that going to be for Georgia over TCU, in your opinion? I mean, it's, it's a big advantage, obviously. They've been on this stage a couple times. And as somebody pointed out to me earlier this week, they were a Tua Tungavailoa pass away from having three of these national championships. You know, it being in position for a third one. So, um, yeah, it matters. But one thing that I, I – opinion, I don't know if there's anything to it. I mean, they are out in California. They're not – They're not. this isn't a in the deep south game. So, I mean, they're both kind of California so far removed from everything else as far as these two programs are that they can just go let it rip. It's a nice stadium. It's a nice place. Um, and we'll see how TC responds. They've been in a lot of close games this year, so – being in a close game shouldn't bother them too much. Defense, who has the edge? I know Georgia has the dogs, pun intended, up front, but you can pass on them. The secondary has, as you mentioned, given up a ton of yards in the last two games. But TCU knows how to get turnovers as well, timely turnovers as they did against Michigan. Who do you think has the advantage with their defense? Well, I mean, it's two different schemes. So, I mean, with Georgia, they're going to come after you and they're going to have to land with that pressure. I think it's going to put some pressure on TCU's tackles. One of the reasons Ohio State held up in that pass rush, they've got two NFL tackles. So, you know, can TCU kind of stress that defense and make some plays in the passing game? We'll see. Um, And then on the other side, you know, TCU plays that 3-3-5, and Kirby was asked about that a lot this week, and, he said it's not the same as Mississippi State. It's structurally different. I mean, that means that they're preparing for this and the looks that, that TCU is going to give them, the run blitzes, and, and trying to force Stetson Bennett into some third and longs. We're talking with Bill Bender of the Sporting News. We're talking national championship game, which is tonight. TCU Horn Frogs, Georgia Bulldogs from SoFi Stadium there in Los Angeles. Give me an under-the-radar matchup or a few matchups that you're going to be looking for in tonight's game, Bill, that could help turn the tide for either one of these teams? I mean, just how TCU, it's not really under the radar, but how does TCU manage defending the tight end? You know, Darnell Washington, they haven't said if he's going to play. Uh, Brock Bowers is obviously a, a, a load to deal with, his athleticism, getting in the in the middle of the field and, and could break a few big plays. So I think that's one on that side. And then TCU, can they run the football? Georgia hasn't allowed really anybody to dominate a game with the running game. So that's going to make Max Duggan more of a runner, I think. And can he take those hits against this Georgia defense? So there are a lot of good players on the field. I'm looking forward to it. It ought to be a lot of fun. Who do you got, bud? (laughs) I took Georgia. I know that spread's high. So for the people that like to do those kind of things, I think it's 12 and a half. And um, I got Georgia forty-one to twenty-seven. I kind of that was the score that popped in my head right when this matchup here materialized. I do think TCU will make some big plays in the passing game and have a little fun with it. But uh, 
in the end, the dogs are just a little bit too strong. It's another championship for the Georgia, another championship for the SEC, and hard to see it any other way. Let's look ahead past this game because TCU breaking through, not only getting into the college football playoff, but then winning a playoff game and playing for a national title. How significant is it that the Horn Frogs made it to the national championship game? I mean, it's great. It's great for college football. And now we'll find out, you know, I have a kind of a long-running joke with my friends about it. I'm like, there's only really five teams that can win this thing. And that would turn that on its head, which, quite frankly, I wouldn't mind being wrong about. Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, and Clemson are the only schools that have won in the last 10 years. It makes it really tough for parity. But with the 12-team coming, and it's not just TCU. I mean, Tulane beat USC. The Rose Bowl was exciting. Tennessee's coming on again. So I think it does create excitement for when we go to that 12-team format. Bill, appreciate your time as always, brother. Keep up the tremendous work that you're doing there with the Sporting News. Enjoy tonight's game, and we'll talk to you soon, bud. Oh, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. I appreciate it. Now that you scored an Amazon Alexa or Google Home smart speaker for Christmas, you can now use it to listen to the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Just ask your Alexa or Google Home to play the game, Southwest Louisiana. Once again, just ask it to play the game, Southwest Louisiana. It's that easy. So do the smart thing and have the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, with you at your office, your home, and everywhere you go. We got to take a timeout. More RP3 and company coming up right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. RP3 is the epitome of a high roller, constantly making large bets. But by doing that, the minimum bet is a dollar for a win, a dollar for a place, a dollar for a show. So it's essentially a $3 bet that netted me a cool $6.70. What? Okay, so he's not a risk taker. He's your best bet for sports talk. 19. Hit me. 20. Hit me. 21. Hit me. 22. Now back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. National championship game is tonight, TCU versus Georgia. We're going to preview more of that throughout today's show. Daniel Monroe is going to join us here in about 10 minutes from right now. He's the co-host of the Locked On Bulldogs podcast. He's going to talk to us about Georgia's journey from losing all those players to the NFL draft through having a dominant start to the season, then a little bit of a lull. And what about that secondary? Is he worried about it? It's given up nearly 1,000 yards in the last two games that it's played. Could TCU take advantage of that? We'll talk to Daniel Monroe from the Locked on Bulldogs podcast coming up 10 minutes from now. Then coming up at 8 o'clock, we'll get the TCU perspective when Stephen Simcox joins us as well. We do have a poll question of the day. What will the outcome of tonight's title game be? Once again, TCU, Ugga, how's it going to go down? Right now, 46% of you say Georgia's going to win a close game. 28% say Georgia's going to win in a blowout. 24% of you say TCU wins a close game. 
We can see it to some more comments. Salty Steve says, this ain't Hoosiers. Double-digit dogs win at 5% in college football. UGA wins and Martin converts to a UGA fan. Frog City discounts all meals and five names comes to work, exhausted from staying up too late. Salty Steve starting already. <laughs> I do think TCU does have a chance, though. I think Georgia's favored. I think Georgia should be favored. And I do like the dogs to win this game. But Georgia is vulnerable, especially on the back end of that defense. And the Duggan kid can chuck it across the field. He just can. And Georgia's defense on the back end is suspect. Look what LSU was able to do to it. And look what Ohio State was able to do to them. And if Ohio State's better coached and Kirby Smart doesn't call the best what timeout in semifinal history, Buckeyes win that game. So I get it. I understand why everyone will say that. And I'm going to say it as well that I like Georgia to win tonight. I believe the Bulldogs are going to win tonight. But it may be a little bit closer than people think. Now, could Georgia pull away late in this ball game? You know, it could be like maybe a close ball game where it's like four, maybe even five points is the difference. And then Georgia in the last three or four minutes scores a, you know, back-breaking touchdown. Yeah, I could see that. But I think it's going to be probably a little bit closer. And here's the thing. No one thought TCU was going to beat Michigan. Vegas didn't think TCU was going to beat Michigan. We didn't think TCU was going to beat Michigan. Michigan didn't think it was going to lose to TCU. Yet, the Horn Frogs pulled it out. Now, they needed some help with Michigan committing buffoonery, bad play calls and turnovers and pick sixes. So, everything had to go right for TCU to win that game. I totally understand that. And make no bones about it. Everything had to go right for TCU to win that game. Everything had to go wrong, perfectly wrong, for Michigan to lose that semifinal game. So that's what's going to have to happen tonight if the Horn Frogs are going to be able to pull off the upset and win the national title. They're going to need some help from Georgia. They're going to need some lost fumbles. They're going to need Stinson Bennett to make poor decisions. And they're going to have to capitalize on said poor decisions. It can't be a situation where they force a turnover and then get no points off of it, right? They're going to have to. They're going to have to hope that Georgia screws up and they're going to have to take full advantage of it just like they did against Michigan. But I do like the Bulldogs to win. I think it would be great for college athletics. I think it would be great for college football for TCU to win. That would be amazing. You have a team like that win, it gives hope to every other team that they can do it to. We've lived in this era of Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and LSU. That's it. No one else has had a real chance at it. And for TCU, a team that formerly was in the Mountain West, 
right? Not that long ago. For them to go and win it tonight, that would be huge. It would be huge for the sport. Do I think it's going to happen? No. I like Georgia to win, and that's how I voted in the poll question. I voted Georgia wins a close game. Once again, it could be a late score that, you know, is a bit of a backbreaker. Georgia's in control. They're up by four, and then they get a fumble recovery or they break out a big run or a big pass play to kind of put the game away in the last five minutes. I could see that being the scenario tonight. But I think Georgia gets it done. And here's the other thing. We focus so much on the Cinderella story for TCU. Last year, they had the losing season. You know, Sonny Dykes takes over. They go from, you know, terrible team to conference, you know, playing for a conference championship, getting to the college football playoff, becoming the first team from the state of Texas to get to the playoff. They win their playoff game. They're playing for the national title. It's a great story. But don't discount something that hasn't been talked about enough. And when Daniel Monroe joins us from the Locked On Bulldogs podcast in a few minutes, I'm going to ask him about this. Georgia lost one of its most beloved figures in Vince Dooley passing away in October. The legendary Georgia football coach and athletic director who was the man that led them to the national title back in the day with Herschel Walker. He passed away in October. Kirby Smart's going to be determined to win one for the man that he had a very close personal relationship with. Those players are going to want to play and win a title for Vince. Even though none of them played for Vince, but he was that revered of a figure at the University of Georgia. So that would be somewhat storybook for them. Put aside the fact, oh, winning back-to-back national titles, being the first team in the college football playoff era to do that, being the first team since Alabama to do it since 11-12, And what, the only fourth team since the early 90s to be able to do it? So that's, you know, that's a great ending in by itself. But to win one a few months after Vince Dooley passed, that's kind of a storybook ending as well, right? You can always find storybook endings for any team that's playing for a championship. You can always find one. And Georgia has that as well. So... Don't discount that as well, because that's going to be part of the emotions in tonight's championship game. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. What will the outcome of tonight's title game be? Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. we got to take a timeout. When we return, we're going to talk more about the title game as Daniel Monroe from the Locked on Bulldogs podcast joins us. We're going to talk all things Georgia in tonight's title game. That's next right here on The Game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. Here on RP3 and Company, we talk about the sports you know and love. Baseball, football, basketball, and soccer. Isn't this great, man? I love soccer. Here we go, Galaxy. Here we go. Okay, maybe not soccer, but we'll try to do our best. Back to more knowledgeable sports talk with RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. 
back to RP3 and company tonight. National championship game inside SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles. That's right. TCU Horned Frogs, the Cinderella story, a team that was, well, a losing team. Had a losing record last year. Sonny Dykes and his offensive coordinator have turned around things as the Horned Frogs are trying to win a national championship. They got to take on the defending national champs, undefeated Georgia. Kirby Smart is building himself a dynasty. And to give us some insight on what the Bulldogs are going to be bringing to the table, the ups and downs of their season, and just how dominant are they, is the man who co-host, that's right, co-host the Locked on Bulldogs podcast. Daniel Munro joins us now. Daniel, good morning to you, brother. Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year, man. I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, it's it, you, uh, My team is playing in a meaningful football game tonight, and there's not a lot of people that can say that. And so how can I complain? Yeah, well, no, you can't. You can't. Sorry. So just go and get that out of the way. You can't. Uh, there, there's no complaint there. Uh, let's go back to the start of the season because a lot was made of how much talent Kirby lost from last year's national title team who defeated Alabama in the title game. Yet, here the Bulldogs are, undefeated, and 60 minutes away from winning back-to-back titles and becoming the first team to do so since Alabama won back-to-back in 11 and 12. How did they do it? Well, I think that's, you you know, you bring up a great point in that Kirby, after the Peach Bowl, made made a comment that went a little bit viral on social media about how everyone's been doubting this team, which is probably a bit of an overstatement. Georgia's still a very talented team. They've been number one throughout the majority of the season. Not a lot of people doubting that this team had talent. But I think what he was alluding to is exactly what you just said. You lose five first-rounders off the defense. You lose 15 players in the draft. You set all these records for most players drafted. And, you know, to your point, Alabama's been reloading like this year after year, and we've kind of gotten used to it. But Georgia hasn't been able to do that. They've had great teams in the past, but then – They've always kind of taken a hit and, and, and a bit of a lull, and I think a lot of people expected that this team would be the same. But there's just a lot of talent on the roster. There's a lot of young talent on the defense, and um, all those defensive players that were lost, they've found ways to, um, to replace them and, and replicate some production. And then they still have a lot of really talented pieces. Jalen Carter was probably the best player on the defense last season he just wasn't draft eligible yet and so they've got guys like that and then Stetson Bennett's back and Brock Bowers is back and all the running backs you know a lot of the running backs are back and so you you still have a lot of really talented pieces um but it's you know going for 15 and 0 that's a that's a rare feat much less back-to-back championship Stinson Bennett his story has been well documented I mean uh, there's even a portion of his story where he was nearly a Louisiana raging Cajun right here in our own backyard. That's right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Billy Napier spoke on that at SEC uh, media days this past year over in Atlanta. Just talk about what he brings to the table. This guy never seems rattled to me. He just seems like, uh, oh, we're down by a couple touchdowns. No big deal. We got this. Uh, what makes him so special? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to say, man. I, you, you know, Stetson is he is a winner. And I understand that, like, yeah, the clutch gene 
that doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. But I mean, but you know, as much as you say that, it it seems to be. We we compare them not in terms of talent, not in terms of you know, not in terms of maybe productivity, but we compare them to like he's the college version of Tom Brady. Tom Brady has never been the most physically gifted quarterback in the NFL. He's never been the guy that gets off the bus that looks like, oh, man, this guy's going to tear us up today. But all Tom Brady does is go out there and out-prepare you and out um, and, and just beat you. He, he He's composed. He knows what to do, and he's well-prepared. And I think that's been the recipe for Stetson Bennett. He's worked really hard at the mental side of the game and at his preparation and his film study. And then he's a better athlete than most people think he is, and he's got some physical gifts that have really helped him. But at the end of the day, man, when the ball's in his hands in the fourth quarter, you saw it against Ohio State. When the ball's in his hands, you saw it against Alabama in the national championship game last year. That Georgia fans have just come to feel confident that Stetson Bennett is going to find a way to win in this game. It's not, he's not the most physically gifted athlete in the world, but he will go down as one of, if the, if not the most productive college quarterbacks of all time in terms of wins and losses. And it just, it's, you can't argue it. If he wins a second title back to back titles with his journey and his story, is he going to be remembered and revered in the same ilk as Herschel Walker? I don't know, but I think so. I, I don't, you know, his story has always been doubted and slept on, you know, even by his own fan base. And, I, you know, the Georgia fan base is just as guilty as anybody else of perpetuating that narrative, especially last year when they were clamoring for JT Daniels, who now – lost his job at West Virginia and is transferring again. They were clamoring for that guy to be the starting quarterback ahead of the guy that won him a national championship and has led him to an undefeated season again this year. So I don't know what his legacy will be. Legacy is more about other people's remembrance of you than it is about what you do on the field. But I'll just say this, and we said it on the podcast this week. Um, I personally think Stetson Bennett has to be considered if you measure greatness by productivity, I think he has to be considered as one of the greatest college football players of all time. And so certainly he is the greatest Georgia quarterback of all time. We had Aaron Murray on the show, um, who was another legendary Georgia quarterback, put up some massive numbers when he was in Athens. And Aaron Murray was very open and said, Stetson Bennett's the greatest Georgia quarterback of all time. You know, you got guys like Matt Stafford who are obviously – more gifted than he is but greatness doesn't mean giftedness you know greatness is about what you do and uh nobody has done what Stetson Bennett has done we're talking with Daniel Munro he's co-host of the Locked on Bulldogs podcast he joins us here on RP3 and company as we gear up for tonight's national title game between the undefeated Georgia Bulldogs the defending champs versus the TCU Horned Frogs let's talk a little bit about this season I remember watching from afar the season opener, the Chick-fil-A kickoff, where Georgia curb-stomped Oregon into oblivion. And I thought, wow, no one is going to come close to even being in the same room with these guys this year. They are going to just run over everyone. 
And that wasn't necessarily the case. There was a lull a little bit in the season. Had uh, their hands full against Missouri, a little bit against Kentucky. What happened in the middle part towards the later part of the season, and how did they turn things around to once again being a more dominant national champion? Yeah, it's it's interesting. The Georgia, you know, the, the Ohio State game, kind of as you know as an anomaly and that game was just a bloodbath obviously um two great teams going at it and um georgia was i think anybody would say georgia was fortunate to come out as the victor of that game even though they did win they made the plays they needed to win the game but but the season's gone a bit um sort of in reverse to the expectations right the best teams that georgia's played oregon who went on to to have a pretty good year in the Pac-12 and prove themselves to be a pretty decent team. Georgia crushes them. Tennessee, the number one team in the nation, comes into Athens, and they just get obliterated by this Georgia team, just completely shut down the Tennessee offense that was said to be unstoppable. And yet, you know, you have games like the Missouri game that Georgia almost lost, maybe should have lost, where they looked they looked absolutely terrible. And I think, you know, I think it's a reminder that you're dealing with 19-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old kids, and um, there's a bit of anyone's going to have a bit of a letdown from time to time. Kirby's done a pretty good job over his career of managing that and keeping expectations the same. But And then Georgia dealt with some injuries along the course of the season, just like everybody does in college football. Uh, Jalen Carter, the best player on the defense, was out for uh, a good part of the middle of the season, and A.D. Mitchell, the best wide receiver, was out for a good part of the season. But you know, but every team goes through that stuff, and uh, I think ultimately, you know, Georgia came into the SEC championship game against LSU, really needing a another solid performance to kind of solidify in uh, in the fan base's mind that they could they were still that dominant team. And I think, although LSU had a lot of yards, that game was really that game was really won early and put away, uh, which I think was helpful for the fan base. Um, and so I think the hope is is that one more game, motivation shouldn't be a problem, and you'll see that that hungry Georgia team come out and, and play well again. SEC championship game against LSU, semifinal in the Peach Bowl versus Ohio State. You mentioned it. A lot of yards, roughly around 900 yeah. passing yards given up in those two yeah. games. That's not typical Georgia football. That's not typically what Kirby Smart has his defenses allow. Any trepidation whatsoever about facing a TCU team that can chuck it across the field as well? Very much trepidation, I think. From any honest Georgia fan, they will tell you that there's a lot of trepidation. I think the um you know quentin johnson is a dude uh at tcu and uh he's an explosive wide receiver and max duggan has proven himself to be an explosive quarterback tcu thrives on those big explosive plays statistically they are not the most efficient offense in college football they don't have the best success rate or any of that when you get into the advanced numbers and the advanced scouting and stuff like that uh they struggle uh honestly to stay in front of the chain sometimes and to to, to win on early downs, but they are one of the most explosive offenses in all of college football, which is how they've been able to score so many points, over 40 points a game for this TCU team 
Um, and it's how they've been able to win, um, even though they've allowed their defense has allowed quite a few points. It's it's because they they hit those explosive plays. If you're going to say that Georgia is susceptible to one area of offense, it's that it's going over the top um, and hitting explosive plays. Georgia can stop the run against anybody. I firmly believe that. I think anybody who's watched Georgia would say, you know, you can't run the ball against them. Ohio State didn't. LSU didn't. You basically have to do what every coach would say we're never going to do and abandon the run and just start throwing it around, which is exactly what those two teams that you mentioned did. And they had a lot of success. They had a lot of attempts, and they had a lot of success through the air. Um, Just like with any defense, I think pressure on the quarterback is going to be the key. The secondary um, is, is okay, but I wouldn't say it's the strength of Georgia's defense. The defensive front is still the strength. The linebackers are fast and athletic. And um, Georgia was unable to get C.J. Stroud on the ground when they blitzed and when they got pressure on him in the Peach Bowl. That's what allowed him to buy time. A lot of those plays down the field were five-second, six-second plays where, you know, no secondary is really going to be able to hold up in coverage like that. And so if Georgia is able to get to Max Duggan and then more importantly get Max Duggan on the ground when they do get to him, which Max Duggins is, is an athletic quarterback, more athletic than C.J. Stroud, really. And so uh, that could be an issue. But if they're able to do that, I think they should be okay in the passing game. If Max Duggins is able to, to scramble around and buy time, um, Quentin Johnson is going to be a huge problem for Georgia. Who do you got tonight, bud? Oh, I got the dogs. I mean, you know, come on. It's 14-0. <laughs> we've, been, we've been here. Uh, I definitely have the dogs tonight. I I hope that it's more of a boring, low-scoring game. That's what we've been saying all week. Georgia fans would love a really boring game, like a 28-10 to 10 type game. Um, I think TCU, to win this game, needs to get Georgia in a shootout. I'm not saying Georgia can't win a shootout, but I think for TCU to feel like they have a great chance to win this game, they need to get Georgia into an up-and-down track meet-style shootout. I think Georgia would rather throw the ball to the tight ends and have success, open up lanes in the run game, and then be able to lean on TCU late in the run game. So I got something something in the neighborhood of 30-14, to 30-13 type of score tonight. I'll get you out of here with this. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how this is a Cinderella story for TCU, and, and rightfully so. But there's something that I don't think people have talked enough about, and that is winning a national championship a few months after one of the most beloved figures in Georgia Bulldogs football history, mm-hmm. the passing, of course, of Vince Dooley, which happened back in October. What would it mean for this program to do that just a few months after Vince passed. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think it's a, it's a narrative that um, Georgia fans are probably even too nervous to even talk about or give voice to just because, you know, feeling like maybe they'll jinx something or whatever. But I, I, I'll just say this. I, could, I can assure you that if Georgia wins this game tonight, that you are going to see – an incredibly emotional Kirby Smart in a post-game interview 
uh, because he will be thinking first and foremost about Coach Dooley. I know that their relationship meant a lot to, to Coach Smart, and uh, just like it did for the entire Bulldog fan base. You know, we, we uh, as is well documented around the country, we waited so long for another championship after 1980 um, and were the butt of a lot of rival fan base jokes uh, during that time. But that's the reason, you know, among many, many other things, that, that was where the legend of Vince Dooley began with that championship. And so I know that it meant a lot to Kirby for, for Coach Dooley to see them win one last year. And now, you know, in the year of his passing, if they were able to win another one, uh, I think it would mean everything, not just to this fan base, but specifically uh, to Coach Smart. Daniel, this has been tremendous, brother. I'd be remiss for uh, not giving you the opportunity to tell folks how to follow you on social media and where they can go to get the Locked On podcast. Yeah, it's at Dogs Podcast, D-A-W-G-S Podcast on Twitter. That's the best way to connect with us on social media. We'd love to interact with you there. We're pretty active over there. And um, Locked On Bulldogs, wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to uh, podcast. There's also a YouTube channel if you want to check that out, Locked on Bulldogs. Uh, Clint, my co-host, and I record episodes uh, five days a week, every day, um, covering everything from recruiting to Georgia football, a little basketball talk in there from time to time as well. And so if you are a Georgia fan or an SEC fan, um, uh, that's uh, where you can go to get daily content on the Georgia Bulldogs. Daniel, appreciate your time, buddy. Enjoy the game. Can't wait to have you back on again. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, let's be honest. We tend to have a lot of fun here at the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, a Delta Media station. And look, if you're looking for a career change and you have any type of sales experience, from retail to telemarketing and everything in between, then Delta Media wants to hear from you. Email your resume to our sales director, Johnette Cochran, at jcochran at deltamediacorp.com. That's jcochran at deltamediacorp.com. Or by simply calling 896-1600. That's 896-1600. we got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll update the poll question of the day and wrap up our number two here on RP3 and Company. You're listening to The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. Lafayette Marble and Granite, they offer the largest selection of granite quartz and marble in Acadiana. And look, you've heard me tell you before that Chris and his team over at LMG, they appreciate the opportunity to earn your business. Look, we struggled to find the right marble, the right cut for our bathroom renovation. Chris and his team not only had the right marble, they could give us the right cut, and their customer service was more than we could imagine, so much so that we can't wait to utilize them again for our kitchen remodel there at the Parch Compound. And look, they provide more than just show-stopping marble countertops for your kitchens, bathrooms, and man caves. They also now have an extensive selection of custom shower builds, including a line of grout-free showers. Make sure to visit their website, lmgelite.com. That's lmgelite.com to learn more about all the sensational services and the great products they have to offer. Live inventory is updated every single Wednesday. Visit lmgelite.com or stop by their soon-to-be-renovated showroom, 
located right there on I-49 north across from Hub City Ford in the jockey lot. It's Lafayette Marble and Granite. They're looking to earn your business, and trust me, earn it, they will. Poll question of the day, we asked you, what will the outcome of tonight's title game be? Right now, 45% of you say UGA, UGA, is going to win a close one. 28% say TCU wins a close one. 25% says UGA wins in a blowout. And 2% say TCU will win in a blowout. Plenty of comments so far. Very good. Keep those comments coming, leaving them on Facebook and Twitter. We'll also share them throughout the final hour of today's show. Two hours in the books. Hour number three, what do we got on tap? We're going to talk little NFL playoffs yet again. It's all set. We'll talk Saints losing to the Panthers with Ross Jackson. He'll join us for the Big Easy Blitz at 8.30. But kicking off hour number three is going to be Stephen Simcox from the Locked on TCU podcast. We're talking national title game. That's next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Hour number three has arrived here on RP3 and Company. I'm the big, bald, and beautiful one, Raymond Parch III. I'm joined inside the studio by Miss Hannah Five, names the producer extraordinaire. Coming up half an hour from right now, Ross Jackson will be joining us from the Locked on Saints podcast as we put a exclamation point or finish writing the obit on the New Orleans Saints 2022 season, which came to a miserable end. Yesterday inside the Caesars Superdome with a 10 to 7 loss. 10 to 7. Oh, me, oh, my. That is just the worst. That'll be coming up half an hour from right now. Don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day, though. What will the outcome of tonight's title game be? Will it be TCU wins a close one? Will it be UGE wins a close one? Will it be TCU wins in a blowout? Or will it be UGA winning in a blowout? Go vote. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids. Right now, though, it's time for us to talk more about that national championship game. Earlier, we got the Georgia perspective with Daniel Monroe joining us here. But now it's time for the, the Horn Frog perspective. And it's time for us to talk with Stephen Simcox of the Locked on Horn Frogs podcast. Locked on TCU is how you can follow him on social. Stephen, good morning. Thank you for making the time, brother. How are you? We lost Stephen. Stephen was so excited about coming on the air. He couldn't take it anymore. And his phone disintegrated. Thus dropping the call. (laughs) 
<laughs> Live radio, ladies and gentlemen. We got Steven now. Steven, good morning to you, brother. How are you? I'm sorry, fellas. I'm doing great. Had some cell service issues there, but we're good now. Thanks for having me on the show. Not to worry, man. Not to worry. Appreciate you making the time. Obviously, it's a, it's a huge day because the Horn Frogs are playing for a national championship. Let's just start there. How absolutely bananas is it that a team that had a losing record a year ago is now 60 minutes away from being national champs? Yeah, I mean, you can't really understate how insane it is and how rare it is. And it's not only the losing record piece, even though that's a huge part of it. I mean, they were 5-7 and seven last year. They part ways with Gary Patterson, who, I mean, he was the program. Like, when people thought it's football, they thought about Gary. Um, and so you wonder, can they get back to, you know, any sort of level of success without him at the helm? Um, and then they, they kind of crashed the party. I mean, you look at, like, the last decade or so, and the usual suspects are the Blue Bloods, Alabama, Georgia, LSU. So that TCU here is just really an incredible moment for this university. What's been the secret to what Sonny Dykes has done in year one at the helm? Well, the offense has improved a ton, you know, and that was kind of his calling card coming over and getting Max Duggan to play at a high level finding ways to use these skill guys in more creative ways. They had really struggled to kind of keep up with some of the modern changes um, in offenses. Gary Patterson brought in Jerry Kill, who was a Big Ten guy, and it just didn't really work from a play-calling perspective. Didn't work with their personnel. So they have a pretty clear identity now. I mean, they run the football, but they're also going to use a lot of air raid concepts in the passing game. And then defensively, you know, they've kind of had this bend-but-don't-break mentality. They've been – Really opportunistic. They forced some turnovers. You saw that in the semifinal game, getting a couple pick sixes from Michigan. And, uh, you know, it's culminated in a team that has really just found ways to win. I mean, they've, they've won a lot of close games this year, and I think as the year went on and they continue to do that, they sort of gained some more confidence. Um, and they, they got an opportunity to get in the playoffs. They, they won that semifinal game. Now, obviously, Georgia's their biggest test, the best team they've played all year, but they have an opportunity to – to go get it done. So, yeah, but I think it really starts with the way they've maximized this talent on offense. I mean, they've had guys. Quentin Johnston is a big-time wide receiver. Max Duggan is a, you know, this is his fourth year starting as a QB. So they've had some talent there. It's just been about putting those guys in position to succeed, and they've done that this season. Let's talk about Max. Uh, he was a guy that was up and down, right? Uh, uh, kind of inconsistent. He had these stretches where – he looked really good. You could see the potential. But then he'd have a run of a couple of games where he just were head scratchers. This year's different. He finishes as the Heisman runner-up. What's changed with Max? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the consistency in the passing game. You know, he, he was a player that can make things happen with his legs, and they used him in the design run game a lot. You know, anytime plays would start to break down, he would kind of immediately just bail out of the pocket and try to get – um, try to get yardage with his feet. Um, so they've they've worked with him on having better pocket awareness, going through his progressions, being you know more traditional quarterback. Um, and then I think a lot of the intangibles that he's possessed throughout his whole career have have really shown through this year, along with the success that they're having on the field. I mean, he's always been super tough. He's always been a great leader, a guy that the team has rallied around. 
And, you know, he didn't win the job out of camp, right, like Chandler Morris did. Um, Morris goes down in the second half, early in the second half of that Colorado game, and Max stepped in and just didn't look back. But uh, I feel like, you know, he, he knows exactly what he wants to do in this offense. They've simplified things for him. They've helped him become a more polished, um, complete quarterback. And he, he's, has, he has, he's always had a lot of arm strength. And so, you know, they've kind of used that deep ball, those explosive plays. Um, they're not a team that sustains a ton of 10 to 12 play drives. They're really trying to take shots and, uh, you know, get big yards when they can. And so they've done a really good job of just kind of figuring out what his strengths are, um, making the offense more tailored to his abilities. And uh, I just I feel like he's becoming a complete QB before our eyes and, and not just a guy who is really tough and can run the football and can do some things, um, you know, in non-traditional ways. He's doing it much more. Uh, in the pocket this year, which has been a huge drive for him. What about TCU's defense? Because under Gary Patterson, they were known for many years for being a, a defensive-minded team and uh, had some really good players on that side of the football. Uh, what about this year's squad under Sonny Dykes as the head coach? Well, they switched to this three-three-five um, look, and so you know they, they've got a lot of like hybrid kind of safeties and linebackers play in the box and then also are asked to do things in coverage. Uh, I think the guys have sort of figured things out as the year's gone on and have a better understanding of their roles. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like they're, they're 32nd in the nation in scoring defense. I mean, this is not like the steel curtain or anything like that. But they've found a way to make big stops. You know, they, they seem to do a really good job in the second half of games, making adjustments once they kind of get a feel for what this offense is doing. Um, they have two really good corners, Trey Hodges, uh, Trey Hodges Tomlinson won the Thorpe Award. Josh Newton on the other side um, has done a really nice job in coverage this year. And so that's allowed them to be confident to allow those guys to play, you know, in some man situations, be on an island. And it, it lets them devote more attention to the run game, um, kind of give some different looks and some different coverages because they know that those players can hold up on their own. And so I feel like that's where it starts. Dylan Horton's a player that sort of emerged for them as the years come on. He's their rush end. He had three sacks in that Michigan game. Um, so they, they don't bring a ton of pressure. I mean, Joe Gillespie, the defense coordinator, really believes in, in kind of using those three-down linemen and dropping a lot of people in coverage and trying to confuse the quarterback. Um, and it's worked for them this year. You know, again, aside from the Texas game, really, they haven't been a unit that's, you know, held teams to 10 to 12 points. But um, they – really do a good job of getting stops when they have to. They tackle well in space, uh, and, and they just play good fundamental football, and then they force some turnovers as well, which has really helped in giving them an advantage this season. We're talking with uh, Stephen Simcox of the Locked on Horn Frogs podcast. He joins us here on RP3 and Company as we look ahead to tonight's national championship game between TCU and UGA. You know, they had such a strong start to the season. Obviously, they were undefeated until they got to – the Big 12 championship game, which they lost in overtime. What was the turning point, though, for you when you thought to yourself, okay, yeah, this team's undefeated, but they really have a legit chance of making the playoff? Well, they had back-to-back home games against Oklahoma State and K-State, which at the time seemed like the two teams. Oklahoma State kind of faded towards the end of the year, but at the time it seemed like those were the two teams that were at the top of the conference. And they had some crazy comeback wins. They were down 14 to Oklahoma State in the fourth quarter. 
They forced overtime. They end up winning in, in triple overtime. And then they were down 18 to K-State at home. Um, and they were able to come back in that game and get a victory. And at that point, they were 7-0. and And, I mean, you look at the schedule and you, you start to say, oh, man, they're probably going to be favored in the rest of these games, maybe outside of the Texas game on the road. And uh, that was when I started to say this could be a special season. Now, honestly, I mean, the, the playoff discussion, uh, I just felt like the committee didn't have a ton of respect for TCU. And I wasn't super confident about getting into the playoff until probably USC lost to Utah because that made a, a clear path for them to get in. But um, even when they were rolling through the season undefeated, I, I knew in my mind, like, if they went undefeated, surely you couldn't leave a Power 5 team out of the playoffs. But uh, they started there at six. They kind of moved up at different points. But it, it felt like they were one loss away from dropping out. Thankfully, that didn't happen. They did lose that Big 12 title game to K-State. But it was a close game. They lose in overtime. And um, the committee kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt, and they took advantage of it, you know, by, by beating Michigan. But, yeah, I'd say that that stretch where they beat uh, Oklahoma State and K-State back-to-back and got the 7-0 and is when people started to really look up and say, okay, well, this might be a team that could, that could do something historic because um, – it seemed like they could go undefeated in the regular season, which certainly was not on the table when, when the year started. Let's go back to that semifinal game. Michigan was was the favorite, and TCU wins that ball game because they took advantage of Michigan's miscues, the bad fourth and goal play call, the turnovers, the, the couple of the pick sixes. You take advantage of their miscues. You made them pay for it. That's what TCU did against Michigan. Is that what we saw in the semifinal? Has that been kind of their bread and butter this season when they've had all these close wins and all these come-from-behind wins? Is that they take advantage of the other team's miscues more than, say, dominating their opponent? Yeah, I'd say so. I think also just making big plays when they had to. I mean, Michigan cut that lead to 21-16. to um, and then cut it to 41-38. TCU's got third and seven. Looks like, all right, this might be the time where Michigan takes over this game, and then they get you know, a little 75-yard pass to Quentin Johnson on a, on a crossing route, and suddenly it's a 10-point lead again. And so they've had a knack for doing that. Um, they've, they've definitely uh, taken advantage of opportunities this season. They, they don't really let teams get away with, with some of those mistakes, and you know, I, I thought some of the – they played really well straight up against Michigan in, in some aspects. People really seem to think that Michigan could just push them around with that offensive line that won the Joe Moore Award. And honestly, aside from that – Michigan ended up scoring a lot of points in that game. But aside from that, the first run that Donovan Edwards broke off, they did a really good job, I felt like, against the run, you know, between the tackles, which is the advantage everybody thought Michigan had. Um, and then the Wolverines started using some play action to kind of get behind those safeties and linebackers and make some plays, but they're definitely a team that, you know, they they needed some help this year at times, and, um, you know, those pick sixes, I thought they were certainly mistakes by J.J. McCarthy, but they're also good plays. You know, Bud Clark closes on an out route, makes the pick, takes it to the house. Uh, D. Winters kind of right place, right time, playing in zone, reads the quarterback and, and takes it to the house after intercepting it. Um, so they've they've definitely been a team that, you know, takes advantage of opportunities. And, uh, yeah, if Michigan doesn't create those turnovers, if they don't get inside the five-yard line twice without any points, then it's definitely a different ball game. But um, TCU did a good job of executing when they had to. Let's talk about tonight's matchup. You know, we see 
Georgia's struggle in the last two games, SEC championship against LSU and then a semifinal against Ohio State with the big chunk plays. Pass defense was a little suspect, gave up a ton of yardage. Does that give you a hope or optimism that TCU can do the same thing after seeing Georgia struggle the last two games with pass defense? It does. I mean, I think the big question for TCU is twofold. It's one, can they protect Max Duggan, which the offensive line has done a nice job this year. Um, but, you know, Georgia, obviously Jalen Carter's a monster, and then they got guys on the outside as well. Uh, can you give Max time? And then can somebody else besides Quentin Johnston step up? I think Quentin's going to have, you know, a good matchup with, with Ringo on the outside. Um, I imagine he'll win some of those battles, but is it is it Tay Barber? Is it Jordan Hudson? You know, Savion Williams, one of these other wide receivers is going to have to get separation uh, against some of these, you know, secondary Georgia DBs to, to be successful in the passing game. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the way that Ohio State, and to a certain extent LSU as well, in the second half of that SEC title game, was able to get yards through the air, um, you know, that's kind, of their, that's kind of TCU's MO. They want to throw the ball down the field. They want to get explosive plays. So if they can do that, then it evens this playing field a lot. That's certainly been the formula. I don't know how well they can run the ball today. Kendra Miller is questionable, their, their main running back. Um, my guess is he probably gives it a go. I'm not sure how effective he'll be. But running against Georgia has been tough sledding. So, I mean, I, I think they'll do it to kind of keep appearances and uh, keep that defense honest. But if they're winning this football game, it's, it'll be, you know, doing similar things that Ohio State did, which was throwing the football and then, uh, Max Duggan, when plays break down, making things happen, you know, with his legs. And I expect him to, to use him in the design run game more, too, because, I mean, heck, it's the last game of the season, so it's not like you're saving him for, for something else down the road. What's it going to mean if the Horn Frogs can win tonight? Last national title was 1938 when they went undefeated and beat Carnegie Tech in the Sugar Bowl. And Dutch Meyer was the coach. It's been almost 100 years since TCU has a national championship. What would it mean for the private school there in the Fort Worth area to be able to be on top of the college football mountain tonight? I mean, it would be massive. It would be a huge credibility for this program. Um, I mean, you mentioned the, the title in 1938, which, yeah, Dutch Meyer, there's a great history there, but – in modern college football, this has been a team that's had some great moments. I mean, they won a Rose Bowl. You know, they uh, won a Peach Bowl in 2014 and were kind of on the doorstep of the playoff, but uh, haven't broken through and done this. And for a, a university that 20 years ago got left out of the, the Big 12 when the Southwest Conference fell apart, and, you know, they had to play in Conference USA. They had to play in the Mountain West. They spent seasons playing a bunch of non traditional rivals or, or teams that were nowhere close to their region, like Utah and BYU and Boise State. Um, and so now, you know, they've they've made it to Power Five. They're in a league that is much more geographically suited to where they are and what they want to do. Um, and to win a national title, uh, and really, you know, for the future of the Big 12 and for TCU, it would just be uh, such a huge feather in the cap and would give them – you know, a ton of momentum. They've seen some momentum on the recruiting trail, especially in the portal um, in the last few weeks as they've been on this run. But I think, uh, you know, hoisting that trophy tonight would, would certainly take it to another level and um, would just give the, the university and the program so much stability moving forward. All right, bud, we'll get you out of here with this. Who you got tonight? 
Well, hey, you know, I've, I've had nightmares about Brock Bowers, eventually <laughs> Darnell Washington, and he's healthy, running through the secondary. I understand on paper that, you know, UGA is the favorite. Obviously, they've, they've got the big advantage with the point spread. But give me the Horned Frogs. I just I, I think they'll be able to throw the ball against Georgia tonight. Um, I expect them to make plays when they have to. And, you know, they've, they've defied expectations. They've defied odds all year long. So I'm just kind of done doubting them. Like, uh, hey, let's throw it all out there and – uh, TCU gets it done tonight in, in shocking fashion. and um, Yeah, they, they win the national championship. Steven, appreciate your time, bud. Enjoy the game, and we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Okay, thanks so much. I appreciate it. That's Steven Simcox from the Locked On Horn Frogs Network joining us here. Yeah, last time they won a national championship was 1938. That's been almost 100 years. Landscape of college football's changed slightly in the time since then, don't you think? I mean, when they won their national title, it was against Carnegie Tech Tardens, by the way. Did you even know that was a thing? <laughs> the Carnegie Institute of Technology. <laughs> uh, you know, what? Who? How? What? What's going on? I don't understand. It's been a while. We got to take a timeout. When we return, more recapping the Saints. And we'll look ahead at the NFL playoffs as well. That's all coming up next right here on the game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station in your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros. You know the routine. Eat, drink, sleep, and sports. All day. Every day, you're listening to The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. New Orleans Saints end the season with a 10-7 loss. Woof. This team just can never get it together the entire season. Like yesterday, the defense, which has been on the struggle bus for more than half the season, played lights out. Sam Darnold, 43 yards passing. No touchdowns, two picks. And they even got one of those picks late. Daniel Sorensen out of nowhere takes the errant pass, and gives them great field position. Two picks. No touchdowns from the quarterback. 43 yards passing. You hold the opposition to 10 points. But what happened? The same thing that's happened all season long. Offense struggles. Offense sputters. Can't get anything going. And then the defense gives up a a couple of big plays to lose the game. Late in the game. It's what happened in Arizona. It's happened in Cincinnati, Tampa. You name, you can do half the losses that the Saints had this year, and it's the same exact formula that happened every time. Have a lead, have an opportunity to win the ball game, unable to pick up first downs, unable to put more points, unable to take advantage of the other team's miscues late. Whether it's bad play calling or execution, you saw it again yesterday. 
whether it was wide receivers dropping Andy Dalton passes or whether it was Andy Dalton throwing behind the wide receiver. We saw both of those late. They couldn't take advantage. And sure enough, in a 7-7 ball game, they give the ball back. Put the defense back on the field again. The defense have been playing lights out. But Sam Darnold made a couple of plays with his legs to pick up first downs. That one on third down was brutal. And they kick the game-winning field goal. And the Saints get swept, swept by a team that fired its head coach, that traded away its best offensive player, and traded away its best wide receiver during the season. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. And this is the thing about this team for so many folks that is so frustrating. And Tyron Matthew, who came up with another interception yesterday after a slow start to the season, after the first half of the season where he was nowhere to be found and couldn't tackle, he finished strong like the defense did in the second half of the season. He talked about the frustration of being in so many close games but being unable to pull out the wins. We don't have that. Tyron Matthew, the honey badger. Started off slow, finished strong, and he talked about the frustration of being so close in so many games. It's definitely frustrating. You know, um, you know, I think, you know, each man in that room, you know, coaches including, you know, none of us, you know, likes to lose, you know. Um, and, you know, but like I said, it's a lot of positive that, you know, we could take from this season, you know, from those losses. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think it's a lot of motivation. So, you know, sometimes, you know, you have to go through these kind of things to kind of, you know, see your potential and, like, see your true self. So, you know, we had our fair share of adversity, you know, this season. Um, and I think it's going to make, like, I think it's going to make gold out of us, you know. So, uh you know, we just got to believe in that. Look, he had a similar message that Cam Jordan had that they want to build off of this, that they had some momentum. They're going to build off these losses. They're going to figure it out. They're going to turn things around. But, you know, they have some issues with this roster. They're going to have to make some improvements at multiple places, running back, quarterback, wide receiver, defensive line, offensive line. Uh, safety as, as as well as Tyron played in the last five or six games of the season. Marcus May has been kind of a dud. There's a lot of question marks for this team entering this offseason. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. We got to take a timeout. When we return here, we'll talk more about the Saints. Where do they go from here? What are going to be the big questions that have to be answered this offseason with our guy Ross Jackson? He'll join us for the Big Easy Blitz. That's next right here on The Game. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. Houdan is ready for Saints talk. They give to Camara, breaks through, spins at the two, into the end zone, touchdown! Time to talk Saints with the Big Easy Blitz here on RP3 and Company. Ross Jackson joins us now from the Locked on Saints podcast. Ross, good morning, brother. How are you? Hey, good morning, RP3, man. Appreciate you having me on, dude. I'm doing well. How are you holding up? 
I'm doing fine. I need some. I need some help though, and that's why I'm bringing right, you I on because you. you are savvy, intelligent, and knowledgeable. So, and a snazzy dresser, I hear. That's what I've been told by people in the press box inside the Caesar Superdome. And I am that, rocking the LSU shirt today, if that's helpful. <laughs> it's not snazzy, but it's there, you know. <laughs> How do you lose a game in 2022-2023-10-7 at home against a team that fired its head coach, traded away its best player, traded away its best wide receiver? Break it down for me, please. Oh, well, you forgot that they also had a quarterback that only threw 43 yards and a 2.8 passer rating. So I'm just going to toss that in there, too. Zero touchdowns um, and two picks. <laughs> everything about that game tells you that the New Orleans Saints won that game, except for, you know, what matters, the final score, right? And so I think a big part of why that ended up being the case is because the New Orleans Saints offense, again, uh, you know, just went flat. And and usually, like, we're kind of accustomed to saying, okay, well, what they score in the first half, that's that's what they score for the game outside of maybe a couple of points here and there, uh, with the exception of the great third quarter they had in uh, Cleveland, of course. But the, the Saints have, have been a team that's consistently kind of gone flat in the second half, and that kind of happened to them right after the the opening drive. I mean, they, they get to a point there to where they're starting to move the ball between the 20 they don't get a single snap within their opponent's red zone in this game. They miss two field goals in the second half. They go four straight possessions punting and then a missed field goal to end that uh, to end that half as well as, of course, uh, turnovers. So I, I, you know, I look at the offensive side as one of those reasons, even though the Saints defense gave up over 170 yards rushing. I don't think that that put enough. I don't think that that put enough pressure on the team to say that that caused them that that cost them the game that the Saints defense held a quarterback to 22 yards passing until his final pass, which went for 21 yards. And that's all that the Carolina Panthers needed to get in the field goal range, kick a field goal and win the game. I put this one on the Saints offense. And it's the same recipe that we've seen all season long. Mm -hmm. Defense plays really well. Then the offense stalls out, can't pick up a first down, can't kill the clock, can't put points on the board after well, the Sorensen interception is a perfect example. You give the mm -hmm. ball back, and then the defense has a couple of missteps. And on that last drive, they gave up the the, the uh, first down run uh, from mm -hmm. Sam Darnold on, on a run play, and yep. then the the pass play. And that was enough to put them in field goal position to win the ball game. Like, but we saw that. We saw that against Cincinnati. We saw that against mm -hmm. Arizona. We saw it against Tampa Bay. I mean, that's been the thing we've seen all season long from this team. Yeah, and uh, you know, defensive end Cam Jordan spoke about it with us after the game and said pretty much you know, to, to the effect, the same thing that you're saying was that this game was just a microcosm representative or reflective of what the entire New Orleans Saints offseason has unfortunately been so far. Uh, opportunities that they weren't able to, uh, to to finish up on, points that they left on the field. Uh, I think that's it, it's it's yeah, their sixth or seventh. Uh, it's their sixth single score loss uh, of the year. So this isn't a team that you know went out there and got blown out or or was a bad team by by that measure. But they were a team that that couldn't finish games and that never really had juice. Where if you knew late in a game that the New Orleans Saints were going to face a deficit, you didn't really expect them to close that deficit and come back for a victory. Um, and that's that's new for a lot of New Orleans Saints fans who are used to seeing Drew Brees, who, you know, you never did count out uh, in a game. The Saints on their offensive side, particularly with the way that they performed this offseason or this season, 
never really felt like they were going to be able to get back into games. And that, and that's disappointing because there's so much talent on that New Orleans Saints offense, even despite even considering the players that they lost and Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry throughout the season, Juwan Johnson, Rashid Shahid, Chris Olave, Alvin Kamara, they still had weapons on this team, Taysom Hill. And the, they whether it be because of scheme, whether it be because of play calling, whether it be because of execution, whatever it might be, things just didn't really come to fruition more times than they did for the New Orleans Saints offense this year. If I point out the four games, right, yesterday's game, Tampa, Arizona, Cincinnati, if they just win two of those four, they have a winning record and they win the division. I, and, and that has to be the most frustrating part if you're a Saints fan or if you're a member of the team, knowing that you let – if you just win two of the games that you let slip through your fingers, you're gearing up for hosting a playoff game this weekend. Yeah, and, and I think the one that, that hurts the most outside of, uh, of of this past loss yesterday was that Tampa Bay Buccaneers game in Tampa where you had it sewn up. You had a 13-point lead in that game, and the offense wasn't able to to you know put together dri- sustained drives long enough to help put it away, and the defense wasn't able to close it out against Tom Brady, who you just simply can't you know count out at, at any point. It doesn't matter how old he is. He'd be 76 out on the field next year for all I care, and you still don't count him out at any point at the end of a game. And so, you know, you look at that game in particular, considering the fact that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers also lost to the Atlanta Falcons yesterday. I mean, the, the Saints were in, could have been in prime position with that win to potentially disappoint and, you know, pick up the, the NFC South uh, with a win yesterday. And so, yeah, I do think that that's frustrating for you. Um, I think that that's frustrating for for the team as well. And something that, you know, Cam Jordan mentioned yesterday, he said, you know, I asked him what his advice was for his teammates, the, the younger teammates, everybody. And what he said was, let this loss burn. Let it motivate you throughout the offseason because this loss sucked and it hurt and it should hurt. And make sure you feel it at the front of your mind so that we're ready to go in 2023. We're talking with Ross Jackson of the Locked on Saints podcast. He joins us here for the Big Easy Blitz. Will Lutz was not good this season. Nine missed field goals on the year. He missed two yesterday. Is it going to be time to move on from Will Lutz as the primary kicker for the New Orleans Saints? I think they'll bring in competition probably in training camp and uh, see if they can give uh, get a little bit of a push there. I-, I think, you know, there's because of what the position is and because how hard it is to find a reliable kicker, I don't think that they'll just openly move on from them because then they could be left with zero options based on, I mean, think about 2021 and the rotation of kickers that they had to go through there. Uh, but I do think they'll bring in competition uh, in training camp. And then that way they can make the decision about which would be the best, you know, which player would be best for their team moving forward into uh, into 2023. But you have to be careful at that position, moving on from a player and then trying to bring in a replacement because kind of like how you can get stuck in kind of that bad cycle of, of, of quarterbacks, you can easily get stuck in a bad cycle of kickers. And you don't have to go too far to, to remember that for the New Orleans Saints. That's going to be one of the many decisions have to, that's going to have to be made this offseason. Let's talk about the Michael Thomas situation. He does a massive restructuring of his deal over the weekend. Many are feeling that that's going to pave the way for he and the Saints to part ways this offseason. What can you tell us about the restructure, and do you believe that's actually going to happen? 
Yeah, I think that's that seems to be what's being signaled. Uh, we've seen this from the New Orleans Saints organization time and time again. Before Drew Brees retired, they restructured his contract. Before Malcolm Jenkins retired, they restructured his contract. Now, before potentially moving on from Michael Thomas, they make it sustainable for their future to be able to move on from him. It's not the only option, right? They could potentially trade him, although it's going to be hard to move a $32 million roster bonus in 2024 to another team. Uh, the Saints could also choose to find a way to deal with that money if they decide to move on uh, and and continue, actually not move on, but continue with him on the team. This at least just opens up more avenues, and now they actually have some options, which they didn't necessarily have options before based on his salary cap. So him taking that sort of reworked contract and dropping to that veteran minimum next year uh, helps the, the Saints a ton if they do decide to move on from him. If they do so, expect it to be a post-June 1 transaction so that they can openly move on from him, but it won't hit the books until June 1st, which will allow them to defer a little bit of the dead money to future years. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that Michael Thomas has played his last game as a Saint? Um, I, I can't say that I know for sure, but I think that if you if you're just accepting the signs that are out there, He's played 10 games in the last three years. He's been oh. dealing with significant injuries over the course of his time. Uh, you know, then there was the whole you know offseason situation a couple of years ago. Uh, and then, of course, them restructuring this contract. The signs are pointing to him, not him and the New Orleans Saints headed towards a split. Will that be what happens? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but it, it the signs are certainly pointing in that direction. Marcus Davenport gets ejected in this game yesterday. He ends his 2022 season with a mere half sack for a guy that's supposed to be a premier pass rusher. He's constantly a almost there, right? You, you see him during the game. I watched him yesterday. Almost got a sack. Almost got a sack. Almost got a sack. And his entire career has been almost. It's a contract year. Do the Saints try to bring him back or do they just finally move on from the Marcus Davenport experiment? Yeah, I, I think. There's there's two factors here, right? There's there's the fact that Marcus Davenport never really ever turned the corner. He finished his contract year with technically more ejections than 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 sacks. That's oh, not great. No, and not, so not optimal, know, Ross. You, not optimal. No, <laughs> not optimal. So you know when you when you look at what you got from Marcus Davenport, particularly in this contract year, but then you look at the other side of it and you look at Carl Granderson and the way that he came on five and a half sacks big time plays toward the end of the season, particularly in Cleveland and in Philadelphia, and, you know, continuously got more and more and more snaps. I think uh, Marcus Emport saw only 17 snaps in Philadelphia, made it through only 12 before he was ejected against Carolina, but his snaps were on a, on a downturn. Um, so I, I think everything points to the New Orleans Saints potentially feeling more comfortable moving forward with Carl Granderson than moving forward with Marcus Davenport. I wouldn't say that Marcus Davenport's time in New Orleans is, is entirely over, but I don't think that they give him some type of a big premium position type contract. I think you let him go and test the market. And if somebody pays him, somebody pays him. If they don't, and you want to you know maintain somebody for depth purposes, that's a part of that knows your scheme, then you can go ahead and bring him back on a, you know, a one year kind of prove it deal, but that's going to be hard to find for any first round pick. I think he'll get an offer somewhere out on the market. And I, I think if you're the New Orleans Saints, you'll take that risk. Um, I, I think between Cam Jordan as well as Carl Granderson and a really, really good group of edge rushers coming up in this year's draft, that they, they shouldn't be in a panic to uh, to retain him if they don't feel that he's going to be a good fit. And I think this contract season shows you that he just wasn't really able to get where the New Orleans Saints expected when they spent two first-round picks and a fifth-round pick to get him. And uh, I, I don't I don't see a, a reality in which which he's back unless he's not getting an offer anywhere else. 
they thought they maybe had themselves a, a great Demarcus Ware find, and it just never it just never materialized for them in that regard. Is Pete Carmichael going to be the offensive coordinator for this team in 2023? I think if the Saints make any change at the coaching staff, which I would expect that they will, then the offensive coordinator spot is one that ends up that ends up getting changed over. I don't know if he's still on staff next year. I, I know that before this season there were reports that he would remain on staff but not as offensive coordinator. So maybe they they put him where he wanted to be last year. But but I do think that the Saints go out there and search for a new offensive coordinator. Every, everything that we've kind of discussed today about what went wrong for the New Orleans Saints kind of centers around the offensive side. And so the play caller and the, and the signal caller are the two places that you generally look to address if you're looking to improve that side of the ball. I think that the Saints would be warranted in doing that. And I think that going into 2023 with something that's a little bit more like a a wide zone or, or or a spread offense is something that could help to thrust this New Orleans Saints offense into the evolution that matches the rest of the NFL. I, I think trying to run a Sean Payton system without Sean Payton didn't work. And, and so now instead of going the continuity and cohesion familiarity route, you go to to change things up and you, and you make a, a, a big change to this offensive scheme, something that keeps you relevant in the NFL. We'll wrap it up with Sean Payton. We know that there's going to be jobs opening up or open do you believe Sean Payton is going to be coaching elsewhere this coming season? And what type of haul can the New Orleans Saints get for their former head coach? Yeah, I, I think it's more likely that he's coaching elsewhere than, you know, the idea that he could potentially return to New Orleans. Um, he'll have a lot of opportunity this offseason, it looks like. I mean, the Texans' positions are, are, are opening up. Denver's already giving him a call. We don't know what's going to happen in Carolina. We'll see what happens in Miami and Los Angeles, both Los Angeles teams, uh, in Phoenix with, with the Arizona Cardinals. So there, there's going to be a lot of opportunity out there potentially uh, for Sean Payton to land, and those are just the, the positions that we're watching. There's always some you know, surprise job that opens up somewhere as well. And so uh, I think, you know, I think Sean Payton's intent on returning to coaching in 2023 and that that means that the New Orleans Saints should be able to uh, trade his rights and, and send him to a team so he can do the thing that he really wants to do, which is win a Super Bowl with two separate teams. If all of the positions out there that open up don't, you know, don't, kind of you know peak his interest and maybe there's a chance that he ends up back in in new orleans but i think it's more likely that he ends up elsewhere and i think that the the picks that the saints could get i know that you know it'll start with a first round pick in 2023 will be the asking price and some package that's built around there you can't trade players uh in in coaching trades you can only trade draft picks and cash considerations so i would expect you know if they're able to get the first round pick for this year then maybe some future additional draft capital for 2024 and then potentially some cash considerations to help them offset the contract and i think that's a good spot for the new orleans saints who have a big question to answer at quarterback this offseason having that first round pick might help them do that ross always appreciate your time brother Enjoy a little bit of time off before you gear up for the Senior Bowl because I know that's on uh, already in the planner on the schedule, yeah. my friend. But uh, appreciate your time as always, bud, and enjoy this week. Thanks, buddy. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. We got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll finalize the poll question of the day and get you set up for Kevin Foot and footnotes right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion, Houston Astros. <laughs>
I want to take a moment to thank all of our guests for a jam-packed Monday edition of RP3 and Company. Bill Bender from the Sporting News. Daniel Munro from the Locked On Bulldogs podcast. Steven Simcox from the Locked On Horn Frogs podcast. And, of course, our buddy Ross Jackson talking all things Saints. We did have a poll question of the day. What will the outcome of tonight's title game be? Winning the vote, 42% of you say Georgia wins close game. 32% say TCU wins close game. 25% say UGA wins in a blowout. Only 1% say TCU wins in a blowout. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. Marden has commented, it's extremely hard to repeat as national champs, so give me the Frogs 45-40 in a shootout. And to all the Georgia fans in the words of Bob Barker, you have your mutts spayed or neutered. Hard on Twitter says, my brain says, Ugga, but I just got this feeling in my gut about TCU and a close one. On an unrelated topic, can you give some insight on what can should be done to protect fans, vehicles, and NOLA moving forward for Pell Saints games at Ridiculous at this point? I cannot help you with that, Hard. I'm sorry. And Doug says, this year's TCU team plays like they're a team of destiny. I'm pulling for the Frogs. For the producer extraordinaire, Miss Anna Five Names, I'm Raymond Parch the third. We'll do it all again tomorrow, 6 to 9, but until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foot and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the World Series champion Houston Astros.